Thank you, Bill. It's a real delight to be back at Faith and Law. Jenny and I have always loved places where hearts and minds run deep, and Faith and Law has always been such a place, so it's a great privilege to be back. Albert Einstein used to say that if you have one hour to solve the problems of the world, you should take 59 minutes working out what the problem is, and it'll be pretty clear in the last minute what you should do about it. Part of the challenge where we are, I believe, as an admirer of this country, is that many leaders are not saying what the deepest problem is. There's no secret that America is in crisis. Some say this is the deepest division since just before the Civil War. But the question is, why? Is it just another round in the 50-year-long culture wars? Is it, as some saying, the coastals in California and New York against the heartlanders? Is it, as others saying, the populists and nationalists against the George Soros-type globalists, or what? I would argue you don't really understand many of the deepest problems until you see the fact that America's deeply divided over the republic and, above all, freedom. Between those whose understanding of America and freedom go back to the American Revolution, in one word, 1776, and those whose understanding often unwittingly goes back to the French Revolution and the French Enlightenment. And if you see many of the things that have flowed through America in the last 50 years, currently people talking about the rage for socialism, but far longer, postmodernism, political correctness, identity politics, social constructionism, the sexual revolution itself, many of these things, they all go back not to 1776, but to 1789 and its heirs. And America today, as I and some others understand it, is at a Rubicon moment. When Julius Caesar came from Gaul and hesitated before the little river in northern Italy, the Rubicon, he knew when he crossed that river, he was crossing from the provinces to Rome itself and taking on the Senate and declaring essentially civil war. In his case, he crossed the Rubicon. There's no similar drastic moment like that today. But I would argue that many of the ideas swirling around Capitol Hill and many other parts of this country, including the universities, are actually representing the same sort of thing. Will America restore 1776 or essentially repeal and replace it and go in a very different direction? My book, and I'm not actually going to talk about the heart of it today, my book is a checklist because I think Americans have to look at different questions surrounding freedom and ask where they come out. Because 1776 comes out in a very different position from 1789. And the differences make a huge difference for the future. But let me raise some other questions, some of them not in the book, that surround this issue today. But first, Think very briefly how and why this has happened. Clearly, there's a profound rejection of the American founding, whether it's called waspishness, 
as the 60s repudiated, or today as white privilege, as people are doing currently, you can see there's a very profound rejection of the American founding because of the flaws that were there at the beginning. Now, they're not new. If you go back to Europe in the 18th century, there were many people like, say, Samuel Johnson, who at the time delighted in pulling out the contradictions in what he called those who have the loudest yelps for freedom who are the owner of slaves. And way back then, they pointed at the contradictions which were there. But whether it was Lincoln, or whether it was Frederick Douglass, or Booker T. Washington, or Martin Luther King, those evils, and they were evil, those hypocrisies, and they were hypocritical, those fundamental contradictions were addressed in the name of what Lincoln called the better angels of the American nature, or essentially the Declaration. So we see Dr. Martin Luther King talking about the Declaration as a promissory note. It was not cashed in for many, but it needed to be today. Now, of course, where we are now, and as you see the shift from King to Stokely Carmichael and various movements since then, you see a fundamental repudiation of the framers altogether. Baby, bathwater, and all has been thrown out. Now, one of the central reasons for that, flowing out of the 60s, was what Rudi Deutschke, in 1968, 50 years ago last year, called the long march through the institutions. Some of my father's friends in China were actually arrested and forced to be on the long march. That's another story, the original long march of Mao Zedong. But Rudy Deutsche was picking up ideas from Antonio Gramsci, Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, and Horkheimer, and calling for a long march through the institutions culturally. In other words, win the universities and colleges, win the worlds of the press and media, and win the worlds of entertainment, above all Hollywood, and eventually you win the world of ideas and you win the hegemony, as Antonio Gramsci put it, and you win what you can't win in the streets. And Deutschke called for that in 1968, and you can see in 50 years' time, they have essentially won those institutions, and the repudiation of the founders is very profound. Now, why has there been no answering response? I mentioned Lincoln, and he's a constant addressing the better angels. There hasn't been any equivalent in our time. Go back to Germany in the 1930s, and many people are saying, what must it have been like to live in the 30s and early 40s? Was it true that the majority of Germans voted for Hitler? Yes. But historians say the main reason why there was no alternative. There was no offsetting faith, ideology, counter position that was sufficiently convincing for the German people and they went with the wrong one. And you can see today the significance of the fact that there is no Lincoln today calling Americans back to the better angels at a time when the repudiation of the founders has become so strong. You could put it 
less politically, by saying that we are all in many ways the victims of a often unwitting secular inerative. If you look at several hundred years of our Western world, we were told, many of us at college repeatedly, that modern freedom and modern toleration are the fruit of the relaxing of the controls of religion in the past, namely the Catholic Church in Europe. And freedom and toleration have come essentially through the Enlightenment. But as you probably know, much more recently, many of scholars pointed out that is actually wrong. The Reformation, one of whose tenets was sola scriptura, was, as one scholar puts it, a summons to return to the biblical text. And the 17th century was called by scholars the biblical century. And what they found in the text, particularly in Exodus, was what they called the Hebrew Republic. And many of the Christians in the 17th century who tried to follow it were called the Christian Israelites. Now you can see in England, and Oliver Cromwell tried, among others, considering the Exodus the direct parallel to what he was trying to do. It failed, the last cause. But it became the winning cause in New England. And you can see again and again how many of them compared the Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Torah as a whole with a new view of human dignity, a new view of human freedom, which was the pattern and the precedent of what they were trying to do. It was not the Enlightenment. And the secular narrative has actually distorted things incredibly, above all, in understanding America. Because the roots of American freedom do not go back to the Enlightenment or secularism in any particular way. They go back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the notions of human dignity and the notions of freedom. Now, what will it mean, though, if these continue to be neglected, if these roots continually to be ignored, and if there is no one calling for a return to the better angels of the American nature. We can either look back in the Bible to see what happens to a covenantal constitutional republic, or we can look in history at people like Thomas Hobbes. Because actually, they overlap. And Hobbes has much more to say about the Bible and his understanding of it than he does with various things that came later in the Enlightenment. But what happens when a republic breaks down? You can see it in the Bible. The book of Joshua, there's no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And what do they want? They want a central elected power to protect them, to fight their international battles and to hold them together. And the prophet Samuel warns them it will lead that such a power will become monarchical and you'll have oppression and you'll have corruption. And of course, that is the story, sadly, of the Jewish monarchy. So the greatest is David, but it's David's brilliant and powerful son who turns Israel into what the Jews call a second Egypt, where half the country is in near slavery to build his palaces and to build the temple. And it was the division following that oppression that leads to 
the end of the Jewish monarchy in its greatness. Now you see the same thing in Thomas Hobbes, whom I imagine many of you read in your college days. In other words, when you have a war of all against all, you want a central power to protect you, and you're prepared to trade your rights and your freedoms to that central power, but the price of that central power will be that it becomes Leviathan, and it will become oppressive, and it will become corrupt, and the cycle goes on and on. Now, that's important for a simple reason. When I grew up and went to college, it was unthinkable that socialism would flourish in America. Americanism was the surrogate, the substitute, the alternative to socialism. You bought into the American dream, socialism was unthinkably unnecessary. What then has caused what we now see currently as the rage for socialism? We'll take the same three toxic factors that you see in judges or that you see in Thomas Hobbes. I boil them down to three. Radical individualism in a rampant, degenerate form. Inequalities, and the American inequalities, say, between CEOs and the average worker, are way out of line with Asia and with Europe. And then you add the third one, injustices. Degenerate individualism, chronic inequalities, and injustices, and immediately you have the desire for state protection and all the current talk about socialism, and again, the rejecting of anything recognizable in terms of the American founding. Clearly, as an answer to this, America needs leadership. I say this again and again in various places. Where is today's Lincoln? Make America great again won't do it, because those who follow that never ask what made America great in the first place. And it wasn't the economy only. It wasn't the military only. It was ideas. It was beliefs. It was ideals. And the way they were put together and the brilliance of the American founding. And unless there's a Lincoln who addresses that and calls the nation back, there literally is no alternative on that side. Clearly, too, another element that needs to be restored is the whole element of civic education. You just take your earlier American motto, a pluribus unum. You can have an incredible exploding diversity so long as you have a compensating, uniting first principles. And you can see that right back from the founding itself. And of course, that was what was carried in the public schools through civic education and it was later called, for better or worse, the melting pot. But it was real. And in the 19th century, scholars tell us, you could take an average citizen, give them a piece of paper, and they could write down 10 or 12 things that were the unum, the uniting first principles. I've often tested it out with CEOs as well as college students, and very few people can get beyond one or two without thinking really hard. There is no living unum in America today. And of course, that's the real issue behind immigration. Not just a matter of walls and sanctuary cities. 
It's a matter of what makes Americans citizens. And if that goes, the country is profoundly in trouble. We could go much wider in terms of the challenges and the requirements and talk of the implications for the Christian faith. If you look around the Western world, which is clearly in decline today, this is maybe uniquely, exceptions perhaps Poland, this is one of the very few countries where followers of Jesus are a huge majority, and yet culturally uninfluential. And tiny groups, say our wonderful Jewish friends, 2% of America, but punch well above their weight, intellectually, financially, politically, in many areas. God bless them. And you have other groups with whom I would disagree much more profoundly, who are a tiny percentage of Americans, but have extraordinary cultural influence. And he, here, we are a huge majority, those of us who are followers of Jesus, and yet with almost no cultural influence that reflects the gospel in a profound way. Now, I look out on you here as staffers on Capitol Hill. The danger of what I'm saying is people may say in their hearts, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not a Lincoln. I'm not the president. I'm not a senator. I'm not a congressman or a congresswoman. But if you look in the scriptures, the idea of leadership is not just the top person. It has the idea of responsibility and initiative and doing what needs to be done right in front of you. I love the fact that the Jews have an awareness of leaders that's far more than the way we think of leaders today. Some of them in the scriptures and some of them in their tradition, although not in scripture. One of my favorites, a gentleman called Nashon. Sure, many of you have never heard of him. Who was he in the Jewish tradition? He was the first man to enter the Red Sea. The Lord drove the waters back. The Egyptian army was closing in on them behind. But most people were still too fearful to step out. Could they really? But Nashon, trusting the Lord and Moses, headed out into the middle of it, and everyone followed him. You think of King David. How does he enter the scene? The younger brother, scorned by his older brothers, why should this pagan taunt the living God? He just raises questions. And they silence him for his cheek and his insolence. And David says rather cheekily, I was just asking questions. But of course he was right. And through his questions he got thrust out to take on Goliath and to win. And I think each one of you needs to say, wherever you are, God has put you there for a purpose. So you're not the congressman. You're not the senator. And you're certainly not the president. But you are where you are, responsible with an initiative before God to do whatever you can do to raise the questions. Let me just finish with a story that my wife and I love, which is behind our daily prayer for America now. When World War II broke out, there was a young 
atheist Don in Cambridge. And he was drafted by the British Army. And he took with him various classics he wanted to read as he was sent wherever he was sent. And among them, he took the Bible. And in reading the Bible, he became a follower of Jesus. Now, sent out to North Africa, with no churches or anything like that, he had the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Now, he found himself in a highly demoralized situation. The British Army had been driven back nearly a thousand miles. They lost more than 35,000 troops captured by Rommel at the siege of Tobruk. And after this long retreat, the longest in British history, they were demoralized and they were divided. If America has a problem with race, Britain, my country, has a problem with class. And sadly, there's another example of it there. The officer class had lots of water for their evening drinks and for their horses and all that, whereas the serving men had hardly any. And the morale in the army was appalling. But then the general was fired. And Churchill sent out another man who was shot down and died en route. And Churchill sent out yet another one, relatively unknown. But Derek Prince, who by then had come to know the Lord well, was asking the Lord what should be his prayer in this situation, this incredible retreat. And they were now on the gates of Alexandria. If they failed in the next battle, the Suez Canal would be lost, Jerusalem would be lost, and all the Jewish population would be taken to the concentration camps in Europe, and the road to India would be open. It was the last stand. And the Lord gave him this prayer. Lord, set over us a leader such that it will be for your glory to give the victory through him. The new man came out, relatively unknown man called Alexander Montgomery. He happened to be the son of an evangelical bishop of all things. And he got the whole army together and he led them and he said, let's pray to the Lord of the armies to give us the victory in this situation. And they won the Battle of El Alamein. Churchill said later, until that battle, it was all defeat. After that battle, it was all victory. But when Derek Prince, sitting on the back of his truck in the unit of the Desert Rats, heard that prayer, he knew that the Lord had sent that as the answer to what he'd prayed for a long time. Lord, set over us a leader such that it will be for your glory to give the victory through them. All of us can pray. But the great thing about faith in the law is that with a sense of thinking through your faith, your worldview, your calling, at every level you are now, you can make a difference. And this is a most extraordinary moment. I do truly believe that America is at a Rubicon moment. I'm not American, but I'm an admirer of this country. I'm an admirer of the best of the American founding. And I think what America represents is that while freedom has never lasted long forever, Athenian democracy, 50 years, that's all. 
The American Republic is history's longest running tutorial in the tough arts of political freedom. For it to fail now would be sad for America and for Americans and your children. But it would be profoundly sad for human history too. In other words, this is what the Bible calls a kairos moment, a moment of crisis and opportunity which needs to be seized at the full flood by those who dare to go in boldly because they know their responsibility. They seize their initiative. They do what they can do in the spheres that they're in, for God's sake, under the challenge of the hour. And that, I believe, is where you are today. Thank you. Want to open it up? Yes, 